It's November 15th, 2016. I'm Drew Messenger Michaels, and today Richard Terrell returns to the Everybody's Talking at Once podcast. Trell, uh, formerly of uh, of critical gaming, now of design oriented and design overtime. Uh, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. So we can we can talk maybe later, and it may come up naturally as we talk about uh, the nature of criticism, which is what we're here to talk about. Uh, you know how you think of the the projects that you're doing now. You know how they differ from the projects you were doing before, because critical gaming is done. It's it exists in the form of three hardbound volumes, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, mm-hmm. And you've, you've kind of moved on to, to different but related uh, projects. And I think our way in is to, to continue the discussion you and I were having privately uh, a little more publicly. So we were talking uh, specifically about uh, Paper Mario Color Splash. Uh, and in the course of doing that, I quoted uh, Ego Raptor, the YouTube personality, uh, when he was talking about The Legend of Zelda games. He had this phrase mm-hmm. that, I, that always stuck in my mind where he said that the, the Zelda series has become a, a katamari of tropes. Uh, that can't be forgotten or changed. And and I, I brought it up in the context of saying that for me, a lot of the problems uh, that Color Splash has uh, come from that same issue, where spe- specifically the combat has also become a katamari of tropes, where you've got to deal with timed hits, uh, just like uh, you did, you know, all the way back to Super Mario RPG on the SNES. But before that, you've got to deal with paint. But before that, you've got to deal with cards, which are the equivalent of stickers from Sticker Star. And it's just like, because none of this stuff can get discarded, it becomes incredibly unwieldy. Uh, and, and to what degree we want to come back to that, we can talk about, but the main thing is in bringing up Ego Raptor, you had a reaction that I found super interesting, uh, which mm, was, triggered. <laughs> it was, I, I think I was triggered. Yeah. So there may be a, no, no, no I was triggered. Oh, okay. I think we might, we might've both been, there was like, we both smelled blood in the water a little bit, but, but what you said was that his, his, I, I, I don't want to misquote you. I don't have the quote in front of me, but basically, basically, I mean, uh, if you want to represent it, go ahead. But essentially you said he's no good. Uh, as as far as talking about the Zelda games, and not only that, but you had some metrics to explain why he was no good. So that intrigued the hell out of me, and so I wanted to talk to you a little bit about uh, the system that you've got for uh, uh, for sort of quantifying the value of criticism, uh, how that applies to Ego Raptor specifically, and what that says about you know how we how we talk about criticism, how we talk about talking about games, movies, books, etc. Uh, but I think most specifically games. So first of all, mm-hmm. did I mischaracterize anything about the conversation? <laughs> Uh, it sounded pretty accurate. I'm going to try to find the quote just for uh, historical purposes. Right. <laughs> yeah. uh, These are in DMs. Raptor, yeah. This may be a little harsh. We might need to edit this out. But Ego Raptor is a terrible game critic when it comes to Zelda. His video got some of the lowest scores out of everything I've scored in all of games criticism. And uh, it's his worst video out of his four sequelitis videos. Uh, that's pretty much my claim. Cool. So, so I'm super interested in how you came to that conclusion because I... Uh... I, I, you know, I, I've found a lot of value in all of the sequelitis videos, but, but again, mm. the thing that most I think piqued my attention was just, was just Richard Jarrell has a system for rating criticism. You know, like that, that was the thing that was most interesting to me, uh, because mm. I know a lot of your, and, and, and this might tie into how design oriented is like, or unlike critical gaming, but a lot of what you do has to do with giving people the tools to talk about games better. So the idea that you've yeah. actually got a metric for how well they're doing that or, or how badly, uh, I think is is super interesting. And and again, part of what's interesting to me is what, in fact, you're measuring. 
Yes, yes. Very good questions. Um, I think we can, we can, we're just about set to embark on our little journey here. <laughs> let's, I mean, let's embark, I, yeah. I, I, got, I got an outline and we can start at the sort of foundational base level and work our way all the way down my, my page here. But uh, yeah, like you, like you said, this whole thing came about because there's a lot of um, assumptions and just clearing the air, you know, we both like games. We both like talking about games. We both think doing both of those things are um, quite valuable. So uh, that's sort of the foundation that we're both coming from. But it's kind of interesting to take a step back and see if we can walk ourselves through um, the logic more explicitly. So I want to just start with the question of what are games? And instead of having this be an incredible sidetrack and an incredible sort of detour to what we actually want to talk about, I just kind of want to give a simple... Um, you know, non-technical, non-perfect definition style response to some of these questions so we can kind of move right along and get to the heart of the matter. But uh, if I asked you, what are games? You know, how would you respond? Like if you were six years old, how about that? And somebody asked you, what is a game? Okay. Um, I, hmm, if, I, if I were six years old, if I were, if I were well, okay, if I were six years old, I would have been playing uh, uh, Zelda at the time. But anyway, uh, so, so I would probably respond that a game is a, uh, man, an interaction for one or more people with a bounded rule set of some kind. Man, you had quite a vocabulary for a six-year-old. My mom and I used to play uh, a game in the car, which was, is this word rooted in the Latin, the Greek, or the Arabic? So, yeah, I was that kid. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah. I might have said, you know, they're fun things, things that are fun. <laughs> Man, that's funny. Like, I, I might have too, honestly, if I were six, right? But I've been, I've been reading um, Ian Bogost's uh, current book mm. uh, about, like, kind of the nature of play and the nature of fun. So, you know, I, I think fun is maybe something we want to leave out of it initially if we're trying for just, like, the, the main uh, definition of game. Because I think if we if we have to define games as something that are fun, that's, that's where a lot of people go wrong or at least confuse themselves, I think. Mm. So... Things you can just call them things then, if you don't like the uh, the fun word. But <laughs> well, no, no. Where uh, were you going? So I mean, is that is that already a looser definition than you would generally want to go with? I mean, for this purpose, as loose as possible is fine. We don't have to worry about the the big F word and uh, all all that uh, more technical stuff. But just getting getting closer to the heart, you know, games are are fun, or games are things we spend our time with. Games are things we like. Uh, games are our hobbies. Games are I mean, all those things, even if. Uh, yeah, it's all those things at once. So, okay. Uh, Let me know, actually, so... hold on. Just You asked me a question in a certain way, and I, I I didn't mean to answer it disingenuously. So if I were six, I would probably have actually said a game is like a, a place I can walk away to. Like mm. like the I didn't know about Miyamoto's Garden in a Box Quote or whatever, but I would have said a game is a place where I, I would have thought of it as a place probably, right? Like a place that I can go that is not the real world and that maybe makes more sense to me than the real world. Like that's that's <laughs> probably how six-year-old me would have would have defined it in total honesty. Well, that's a pretty cool answer. Uh, some of the next the next question that's a, still, you know, might send other critics for a loop, but we're not going to be pitfalled by it is, you know, uh, what is art, right? And well, so you might give us a similar <laughs> six-year-old style uh, answer for this one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, and and but I should mention for anybody who wants to hear you and I discuss at length <laughs> why, 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 in your opinion, it's okay to give games a definition but not art. Uh, there is a whole episode of this podcast about that. Um, but you, you want my six-year-old definition of art? Yeah, yeah. Uh, huh. Um, that's a really good question. Um. 
damn, I was never called upon at age, at age, I was called upon a lot in college as an art history major to define art, but as a six-year-old, mm-hmm. I guess I probably would have said uh, something that's uh, something that's supposed to be important or beautiful. Because I probably, like, mm-hmm. I grew up in a theatery household where people talked about, you know, cer- certain certain stuff we saw as just being entertainment and certain stuff as being art with a capital A, right? So I probably would have absorbed that, like, I, I wouldn't have had this word, right? But I, that, that, that modernist idea that art is a special category of things with value. Interesting. Yeah, around six years old, you know, I probably was close, reading books or close to reading books, had probably had some coloring books, probably uh, did some stuff with Legos here and there, but... uh I probably would have just said neat things, right? Neat things on paper, neat pictures, uh, colorful things, all that kind of fits into that whole uh, six-year-old perspective. Yeah, totally. Neat is probably the most six-year-old world, but but I think we're I think fundamentally we're not disagreeing, right? That or or, or, the, or yeah, yeah. these hypothetical six-year-old versions of us aren't disagreeing even, right? Like <laughs> art art is, art is stuff that is supposed to give you art feelings. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah pretty much. So oh uh, yeah, a lot of this has to do with. Um, the things we value and uh, the expression that's there, whether or not we we think of games as these other spaces, these other worlds that we can jump into and, and experience all these other kinds of things that can't be found anywhere else, whether we think these pictures are neat and the color combinations neat, the, the imagery is neat uh, because, you know, the pictures have Pokemon in them. Maybe we think that's neat, even though Pokemon didn't come out till I was 12. Yeah, <laughs> stuff, stuff like that. Ninja like, Turtles we, before we that, like, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> we clearly like the things... Um, uh, because they represent something, they uh, hold this possibility, they reflect the world in different ways, and and part of the way that we learn about the world and what's out there and what's possible and who we are and what we think is just by interacting with so many different things, which is really why uh, these forms of expression are super, super useful. It's just like a really concentrated chunk of like, hey, this is what somebody else thinks is interesting, so I'm going to check that out and then and then go from there. I buy that. Okay, cool. So yeah, so on a lot of very fundamental basic level, uh, we, we recognize that the world is super complex. These games, these pieces of art are much, 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 much less complex. Uh, just, you know, whatever is contained on the picture frame, whatever can be contained on the cartridge, it, it encompasses most or all of what that game is. But the world is so much bigger and includes that game. So we recognize that sometimes we need help focusing on things sometimes we need help uh filtering out the world or when people convey ideas they need to do so in a way that takes a lot of that complexity out of the picture so we can can focus it's just way too much out there and uh there's lots of different details that complicate life i call them the deets of life right the who what where when whys and hows but there's a lot more details even beyond that that kind of connect those things and and there's so many increasingly complex ways of modeling the world and observing it and thinking about it so on and so forth yeah and i would i would even go a step further there i would say that like games are sometimes abstractions of specific who what's where's when's why's and mm-hmm. how's from the real world um and, and mm-hmm. like so that interaction is maybe like one step more complicated where you know a, a video game about tennis is an abstraction of the real world game tennis which is itself a way of of interacting with you know physical balls and nets and, and clay or grass or whatever so like mm-hmm. it is still it's, it's always you're right it's always less complicated than the totality of the real world but but why it is or what it's simulating or whether it's simulating anything Thing changes game to game probably yeah and that that's probably the more interesting part uh not that we can recognize a game is called tennis so it's probably about a game 
uh, named tennis, but uh, exactly which details are transferred. Like if the designer didn't care about spin on balls, maybe the whole game wouldn't have spin. And you're like, whoa, that's interesting. (laughs) Maybe maybe the designer doesn't know about it. Maybe the designer doesn't care about it. Who knows? But even in making that comparison and drawing any kind of connection that you can between what you perceive and observe in the the work itself and what you know and, and observe about the world is part of what makes these things super, super interesting to experience and talk about after after the fact. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, a classic example of how the simulation relates to the real world, specifically in what it excludes, is, you know, sports video games. Long have sort of, uh, with, with exceptions, right, ignored the, the players' lives outside of the actual field of play, which is a lot of what sports fans find most interesting. So some games have tried to mess with that. I think it was the most recent NFL game decided they were going to add a, a color commentary based on current events in the league, not just stat updates, oh, but wow. actually have the announcers say stuff. And then immediately wow. after EA announced that, the Colin Kaepernick thing happened. And they were like, actually, maybe we don't want to do that. Uh, so, oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a very interesting position for them to be in. Wow. All right, cool. So I came up with this. Um, so now we kind of got a really good idea of what games are doing, what the world's doing, and how people kind of interact with it. It's a very simple, quick way of getting through all that. But it's, we're right at the getting closer to the heart of the matter. And at some point, you know, the world's interesting and these games are interesting and experiencing these games are interesting, then the, the last little piece of the pie is how we talk about games. So uh stands to reason that when you talk about a game after doing all that interesting stuff, you know, there should be some kind of inherent interesting quality about, you know, why we're uttering such words about these things in the first place. So when there's words on the page, those p- words should be interesting. They should also connect uh, people to these experiences, to these ideas somehow to relate what's happening and just be a, a, a sort of a, a natural extension of whatever happened in the, the experience of playing these games in the first place. Hmm. So, so yeah, that's interesting. So, I mean, so, so most, I don't even know about most, some, but not all criticism definitely works that way, uh, that it's trying to either, uh, elucidate or explain or, or make explicit something that is implicit in people's experience. I think a lot of the best criticism, uh, so, so for example, uh, let me use you, right? Uh, so you did an episode of, uh, design overtime recently about, uh, comparing two moves in smash brothers, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Mario's fireball versus I think it was Corrin's, uh, uh yep. neutral special attack, right? So, so those are differences that anybody who picks up a controller and plays smash brothers, will notice but may not have the language to describe or or certainly mm-hmm. to explain why they're interesting or what they have to do with what you were calling conservatism right which of these is sort of a standard smash brothers move that's pretty close to the average values in terms of how long it takes and how much damage it does and which of these are a little bit wilder or less conservative yeah. right so so some game criticism absolutely does that but there's definitely some game criticism that tries to be a work in its own right, maybe in a different genre. I mean, like when, when people do a little narrativized thing about, you know, like a first person narrative of something that happened to them in Skyrim or something that still can be, it isn't always right. Sometimes it's just fanfic, but it can be criticism of a kind. Uh, this happens a lot with writing about roguelikes where in order to explain why the systems are interesting together, somebody tells a story of a thing that happened to them in the game. And that can be more useful than simply explaining in the abstract how the game systems work together. Because part of the joy of anything like, like a roguelike, anything that's complicated and or procedural is that the interactions of the systems together can surprise you, you know? Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Maybe sometimes criticism has to be something that feels absolutely nothing like playing a game, and sometimes it should be a natural extension of it. Yeah, well, what I mainly meant by uh, natural extension is 
people people naturally enjoy and put energy into talking about things that they enjoy and put energy into right oh i see what so you're saying. like yeah, yeah. if somebody eats something delicious they like turn immediately to their left or right and be like this is delicious like they have to tell somebody um what's going on what they're experiencing maybe encourage them to try it or whatever and it seems that uh in general sharing things is a it's a natural way it's a natural extension on how we enjoy things in the first place i see what you're saying yeah the the drive to describe or understand things is not really that separable from the drive to enjoy them in the first place yeah it's like it's connect it's like that connected final step you're like oh man yeah, yeah, yeah. like i can't i can't keep this all to myself yeah i see what you're saying <laughs> yeah okay yeah totally totally yeah yeah and there's, there's a funny geico commercial with raccoons about keeping flavors to themselves but uh that's what <laughs> if you haven't seen the commercial don't worry about it no, you know what? I, I will link to it because uh, it's clearly <laughs> key to this discussion. Yeah, co- totally. Yeah, I'm on board. Okay, so you know, before we even consider uh, what criticism is, I think what we've painted a picture of is just really something we all understand. Um, it's cool stuff out there, uh, cool things that people do in response to cool stuff. People experience it, and then they want to talk about it and share some of the coolness or even some of the badness or whatever. Like people share their experiences. Uh, when they're strongly felt and that's kind of like a natural thing that we expect within the gaming industry gaming medium and outside other mediums other experiences all over the place people are sharing and to you know just to quote some cliche but very sort of uh clearly articulated phrases sharing is caring right <laughs> sure, <laughs> it's just yeah. it's just part it's just part of how it works uh nothing nothing to um to uh, need nothing that needs to be challenged at this point us i mean we're on a podcast and we're sharing our thoughts and this is kind of this is kind of the wheelhouse that we are in right now that's a really good point i mean like why did we decide we should i mean for for starters because dms are a weird way to communicate right but why did we decide to take this specifically like why aren't we just having a private skype conversation right now yeah because we thought like we're a little bit driven to share this conversation because we think others will find it interesting and mm-hmm. also, you know, I mean, like, there may be a certain degree of vanity, right? Like, well, you and I think interesting <laughs> enough things that people should hear them, damn it, right? Uh, yeah, there's got to be someone else out there that thinks this is interesting. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. There's That's a leap of faith, maybe. But, you know, I mean, I, I'm speaking for myself, I've gotten enough reactions where people say, hey, that was interesting, that I feel emboldened mm-hmm. to keep sharing my, my stuff, right? Um, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I'm sure you're the same way, right? Because you've you've got a you've got a, a pretty uh, pretty dedicated uh, following of, uh, I, and I say this with all of the respect in the world, you know, weirdos and nerds, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If they weren't nerds, I wouldn't know what to do with them. <laughs> I feel very much the same. Yeah. <laughs> so even before we get into like uh, what criticism is and all that, like this is this is the landscape we're dealing with, and I think it's important that. Um, at the, at the heart of this, you know, people are just just trying to do the best they can to communicate, to wrap their head around these stacked layers of complexity, whether it's if it relates back to the world, the game, or their own experience. There's something in there that they want to relate. All, navigating that whole landscape is tricky, but everyone's doing it in different ways and trying to do it to, uh, you know, satisfy this seemingly necessary part of enjoying the thing in the first place. So I guess one of the big first questions is uh, that you can answer in your not six-year-old perspective. Thank God. Is, uh, is uh, what do you think the difference is between a review, an analysis, and a critique? Oh, that's a good question. Um, okay, so hmm, okay, so so this interacts a little bit with with the different ways that games exist in the world. So so you said something, and you kind of you, you you didn't use them as synonyms; you just listed them all, right? But you said like the game industry, the game community, like all that stuff. We we sometimes think of those things as all being the same 
mm-hmm. uh, to a certain degree, reviews belong to the part of games that are an industry. Uh, a review is, first of all, inherently an opinion, right? So if we're if we're going to talk about objective reviews, let's let's fight that right now because there's no such thing, right? Uh, a review <laughs> is inherently somebody's opinion about, in this case, we're talking about a game, but about anything. It, it's hopefully a well-founded opinion and hopefully uses real data or real observations from the thing it's talking about. But it is it is someone fundamentally telling you what whether the thing being described is worth your time and implicitly your money. And why? Uh, and that's, I think, what people expect from a review, right? Like, it, it, it personally, I'm, I'm a fan of not necessarily using numerical scores or thumbs up, thumbs down or whatever, but there is sort of an inherent, you know, you're, you're, you're reading it to hear from someone whose uh, interests and or biases you understand to try and find out whether the thing they're describing is something you too might be interested in trying out. Uh, reviews can do other things, and I would even argue they should if they're going to be interesting. You know, a review that where the whole thesis is this game is good, you should buy it, or this game is bad, you shouldn't buy it, is usually a very boring review to read. Um, it, it quickly descends into those parodies people sometimes do where, uh, you know, it's it, like, I'm going to write a completely objective review. I think Jim Sterling did one one time about Final Fantasy thirteen, where it said, like, it has text in it that people can read if they can read. You know, um, <laughs> so, 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 so reviews occupy the space where it is supposed to be evaluative. And to a certain degree, it's supposed to be about, do you want to come along with me or not? Mm-hmm. Uh, a, an analysis is more about just explaining how things work under the hood. Uh, mm-hmm. So, so, you know, you're, you're again, I, I would probably put your, your uh, breakdown of the two moves in Smash Brothers under the, the, uh, the, 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 the lens or the category of analysis, or you did a thing about sleep moves in, uh, in Pokemon, right? Uh, mm-hmm. You, you cataloged all of the different sleep moves and how they work differently and what their hit percentages are, their accuracy or things like that. That would be analysis. Critique is when you do something with that. Critique is when you take the analysis that you have, uh, that you've that you've used, and, and and obviously if your analysis has a mistake or an omission in it, it's going to hurt your critique. But you 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 come up with some kind of therefore uh, using the stuff that you've observed or uh, or or thought about within the space of the thing you're talking about. So so you had some therefores at the end of your sleep in Pokemon video, right? You said uh, therefore you know sleep is probably overpowered. You know here's some evidence from the real world where competitive Pokemon leagues don't let you use it. Uh, here's how it could maybe be improved. So review is fundamentally about whether or not it, it, it's fundamentally about evaluating an object in in some kind of either explicitly or implicitly capitalisty way of is it is it worth my time or not? Analysis is more about just explaining how something works and you know and you can use like the the language of formal theory or not. Um, film Cred Hulk said that thing about how like you know he when he reads someone who writes about movies he doesn't care whether they went to film school he just cares whether they've seen a lot of movies right. Uh, mm. So whatever language you use, you know, it's about explaining why something works or doesn't work the way it does or doesn't work. And then critique, again, is when you take that next step and say, <laughs> you're getting dangerously back into opinions, right? But you're saying, based on the analysis that I've offered, here's something, uh, here's, here's, a, here's a, a declarative sentence or a useful question or something else a little bit more out on a limb about the thing I'm discussing. Mm. Cool. Those are really good answers. Um for me, the biggest difference would be a review. Um, I think a review, if you if you just think of it as a uh, recommendation or a buyer's guide, it can be a super simple, like no text, thumbs up, thumbs down. It can be a number <laughs> score. It can have words. It can, it may not. Like none of that really matters. It, it can also be objective. Like if you think for non-video game products, if you just want a review of uh, like a vacuum cleaner, 
you just kind of want to know how long the cord is, how big the dustbin is, and how long those things typically last. And you could get all three of those stats if a review provided for it. And that's all you're looking for. It's it's what you want to know in a vacuum, like how strong it is and how long it lasts. And if I, if so, I could interject, this is why some game theory people hate reviews as a concept, because it treats <laughs> it treats a game more like a new vacuum than like the new James Bond movie. <laughs> in a lot of ways, though, games are both. Uh, sure, totally, you know, yeah. They definitely have that technical aspect where, dude, does this thing even run on my computer? What's the frame rate? How much power do I need to have? Like all these, does it work with these controllers I have? All that's very important uh, for playing, even getting into the experience before you can even experience the uh, the James Bondiness of it. <laughs> sure. <yeah. laughs> the 007 espionage of it. <laughs> so right, like, right. I, I can understand why people would have reactions both sides. But uh, to me, a review is that it can come in any form. It can be complex or not. Uh, but you know, I had this one theory that the reason why reviews, um, are ultimately the least sort of descriptive and interesting out of all three of these types is that the best review in the universe, the most accurate, useful, uh, useful and practical review system in the entire world. You want to know what it is? I came up with it a few months ago. Lay it on me. Okay. It's a, you from the future. And you come back in time and tell yourself whether or not it was worth it. Yeah, totally. And and, and they all, all that person, all you would have to do, the future you would be to nod or to shake your head. No <laughs> words necessary. Just you know yourself. You know who you were when you would visit back in time. You know exactly that point in time in which you are imparting this information. And then you would know whether or not it would be worth it. Nod. Movie, yes. No. Okay, I'm going to do something else. Thanks, future me. So really, that's all you're looking for in a review. Somebody who knows you, but somebody who also doesn't give you any information to spoil it or whatever. <laughs> I mean, that would be the ultimate, ultimate review. And everything else is just trying to measure up to that. I love that. Um, not I love that not least because, you know, if, if we really go with the scenario, like if we if we follow this to its logical conclusion, Rick and Morty style, if the, <laughs> if the future you shakes his head and then you don't see that movie, then you've just eliminated that future you. He's just blinked him, <laughs> like you've created an alternate timeline where you didn't spend those two hours watching yeah. it uh specter or whatever yeah okay i love that and i think you're right i think that's the weird platonic ideal that reviews uh when they're when they call themselves reviews uh are, are trying to live up to in a weird way mm-hmm. and that's why you know people get obsessed with uh, a, cr- a particular critic or, or reviewer i should say uh who who they're like well i always agree with him so i love reading yeah. his column <laughs> you know what i mean yeah that, that helps a lot when you can filter through a lot of the uh is this person like me if they're like me then i can just go with it and not have to worry too much even about reading what they say uh people like finding people that are like them that's uh part of the reason why people share stuff you know making connections understanding the world a little bit more making the world a little bit less complex all that stuff we like that stuff uh, but as you kind of mentioned before reviews often mix in other types of uh, other types of things other analysis and even critique uh type things even though we haven't defined them yet you can clearly see that a review can be super stark or just more colorful more expressive more words more models whatever and you know mixing things it's its own issue but to me an analysis is as you said just breaking things down explaining how it works you don't even need any opinions whatsoever just description labeling categorization uh whatever and that that really helps for some things not all things but it helps for a lot yeah, I would say that if you know if you're if you're noticing that there's no opinion, you're probably reading analysis. If there's no opinion and you're bored, it might be bad analysis or or, or yeah. you know or something like that. But but probably that's what you're dealing with. Mm-hmm. So then that's kind of stands to reason that the very heart 
of art, the very heart of people and why they share stuff and what they like and why they they dig hobbies in the first place is falls on the critique side of things. And kind of, as you said, that therefore, that sort of leap in, in uh, logic, that sort of higher level statement, that subjective addition, addendum, if you will, that is... Uh, both what makes a critique a critique, but also sort of the reason why we like them in the first place. We're not necessarily looking for an analysis or review when we're going for a critique, but we kind of want that little nugget of humaniness that kind of like, hey, this steak tastes good. And you don't have to break that down. You don't have to score that. But I kind of want to know someone else in the world thinks this steak is good and give me more details along that uh, axis, along, along those lines. And that's mostly what we are concerned about when we are talking about critique. Ooh. Sorry about that. <laughs> we have a very, very active guard dog. Hey, buddy, you're cool. You're cool. You're cool. There's a tra- there's a child in the hallway, so the world is ending. Sorry about that. <laughs> you're okay, buddy. All right. Yes. So I agree with everything you're saying about critique. Pardon me while I comfort my dog. Oh, no problem. All right, he's in my lap now, so. How, how big is the dog? He's about uh, 25 pounds. So okay. He's a little too big to be a lap dog, but he doesn't know that. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. He, yeah, yeah. So, so continue, by all means. Oh, yeah, I think we're, we're all on the same page. Um, you know, a lot of times when people jump into conversations about reviews and critique and all that stuff, uh, they're usually talking about a blend of things. And I like to straighten it all out like this just because it helps focus things a little bit more. But now that we both have um, the idea of what a critic or what critique kind of is in our heads, I came up with these these four interesting questions to try to reveal what people truly value in criticism. And I designed these four questions to be answered, and I'm going to throw them at you, see what happens. Okay. You ready? Sure, yeah. Okay, so I call these the four chef questions. And uh, the first one is, how valuable... Would a food critic's words or assessment be about food he or she has never eaten? Hmm. Um. Not very. Okay. Uh. You could. You could make. You could make a. You could make a. You. You. you okay. So there are still things you can say about techniques, right? You could. You could say in mm-hmm. the abstract. You know, chocolate goes with raspberries, or or you probably cooked that bird too long, right? But at the end of the day, the goal <laughs> of food is to be eaten. So I will always take the opinion of someone who's tasted it over the opinion of someone who has not. Okay, so next question. Uh, let's see, where is it? How valuable is the criticism of a food critic who doesn't like sweet things? Sweet things, and uh, the, the food they have to critique is a dessert, like ice cream. <laughs> well, uh, th- I would say that, that you have to maybe, um, if you're doing like a Nate Silver waiting thing, you're probably going to assume that that critic has a bias toward uh, semi-savory desserts, like or green tea ice cream, maybe, uh, or, or taro ice cream or something like that. Um, I don't know that that makes the critique less valuable. In fact, you know, if, if this is a person who I know doesn't like sweets and they say, you know what, this cheesecake was incredible, I, I know that's probably a pretty, pretty fucking good cheesecake. So it prob- <laughs> or it prob- it's a steak. <laughs> or, or the cheesecake had a steak on it. That's actually very fun. This this cheesecake is amazing. It's it's got marbling. Uh, yeah, yeah. So so I mean, you have to take that into account when you're reading it. I don't know that it necessarily. Um, I mean, like, <laughs> it's possible that writer just has the wrong beat, right? Uh, but but yes, it probably makes the average determination about 
you know, a, a piece of chocolate less valuable or or at least it changes the meaning of it, right? Like it's not going to be a review anymore. It's going to be a, a curmudgeon talking about <laughs> this thing that they're doomed to write about that they don't like. It changes mm. the nature of the thing. It probably mm. makes it less valuable as a review, but it may not make it less valuable as critique. It just, it makes it a very different perspective. Okay. Okay. And I, there probably is an equivalent for that in games too, right? Like I don't play shooters, yeah. but here's what I thought of Spec Ops The Line, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, the third question, how valuable is the criticism of a food critic critiquing a recipe, which is a step-by-step set of instructions, <laughs> if they have little to no cooking skills? And let's say this recipe is for medium to advanced cooks. Mm. Uh, again, I w- I'd probably say not very. Uh, and that, that goes back to the, what, what there's, a, there's like a Frank Zappa quote about how um, sheet music is the recipe and you don't usually eat the recipe. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, so, so, you know, to, to like to judge a piece of music that hasn't been played yet is a little bit silly. Right. And there, there probably are, I think, I think the really important part of that, of the way you set that up is the little to no cooking skills thing. Right. Cause there, there are people who have enough experience that they can look at a recipe and, and sort of picture how the flavors are going to blend or how the techniques yeah. going to work the same way that if you can read music, you can look at dots on paper mm-hmm. and sort of hear it. Or if you mm-hmm. are literate in blueprints, you can look at blueprints and see a building. Right. But without those tools, you're at, at best you're taking a wild guess. Okay. Okay. And the final question: How valuable is the critique of a food critic who takes super hot sauce everywhere and pours too much on all of their food? That's my brother-in-law, by the way. He um, <laughs> he had a, he had a, a sinus thing when he was a kid, so like he, oh, yeah. his, t- his taste buds are dead. But capsaicin is a chemical reaction, right? So spicy mm-hmm. is the main thing he can taste. So uh, I um. I don't usually, I mean, I take his advice, but only if I know that I, I want to eat something in his wheelhouse, right? And then, man, that's that's a really good question. I mean, I, and again, I can immediately see what the equivalent is in a movie or a game. Um, it, it may be similar to the food critic who doesn't like sweet things. Mm-hmm. You have to adjust for that bias and, and maybe even more aggressively than the one who doesn't like sweet things. Um, it's valuable if he's talking about you know, where can I get the spiciest wing in town or something, you know? Uh, but it's, but it's probably not going to be a very, uh, like, like there's going to be depth, but not breadth in the writing of, of that kind of food critic. Okay. Okay. Let me just do that. So yeah, those are the four questions. I threw those out to, um, just about anyone who would read them and listen to them, just trying to get, uh, and reveal the nature of what they think about, um, games criticism, what they think about criticism, but really, like we outlined, it's really talking about the heart of um, you know the complex world and how people relate and share meaningful things to them. So, like that's what really what we're talking about when we're talking about criticism. We're not talking about you know lording opinions over other people. We're not talking about being arbiters or judges of culture or anything like that. We're really at the heart talking about what kinds of experiences are out there and how people can connect to those experiences. Um, I'll say that your answers, let's see, let's see, let's see. So wait, I, I, let me ask a really basic question before you, yeah, yeah, yeah. what you were, you were writing stuff down as I was talking, what were mm-hmm. you writing down? You weren't transcribing the whole answer, right? Like you were, no, no, were... no, no. So I have a chart. Uh, I asked this question to a bunch of other game, uh, critics, professors, games, people, and, um, and I, I compiled the chart last night. So I just have the four columns and, 
you know, color coded for if your answer was like on the useless side, the middle of the road, or the useful side is in terms of each question. So am I all and yellow I, then? Just all middle no, of the road? No. <laughs> well, like red, yellow, red, yellow. Uh, I think I think your responses were you know useless, and then it depends on the context uh, adjusting for their bias. Useless for the chef who um, has no cooking skills because he can't evaluate it, uh, and then you know contextual. If uh, you adjust for the bias of the hot sauce on the food. Sure. I, ex- so, I, I accept that. Sure. <laughs> and your answer is mirrored a friend of mine. And um, but other than the one other person, I think your answers were not duplicated across the board. There's only 15 answers, but, you know, these, these are all the cool people, I say. Uh, only, only <laughs> so cool it's, people it's a small this. sample size, but it's it's good company. <laughs> all right. That's good. <laughs> But yeah, I just think I just think it's interesting. There, there are no like, haha, I got you. You answered incorrectly. Like, there's nothing like that for these answers. But it, it makes you think. Um, the questions, uh, it's, it's it's interesting. Some people are like, oh, this question's like that question, and you're like, oh, this one's the same answer as that one. And there are subtle differences, but they're all kind of getting at the same thing. And, and like the first question, you value someone who critiques something that they haven't experienced. Basically, if you don't eat the food, what can you say about it? And there's some people out there that are like, oh, well, if the person's smart enough, they can look at it. They can just kind of know that too much heat was applied here or you should never mix these ingredients. And I'm like, mm. yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that, sure. We, we know you shouldn't add poison to food or, or dog food or whatever. Like, yeah, anyone could probably see that. Um, but what, what we're really trying to get at with criticism is what is the experience like? What do you think the experience like? And and like, how do you, what do you want to convey to me about that experience? So whether it's good or bad or whatever, like I need that, that core valuable human element and just glibly talking about uh, technique from, from sort of a, a non directly experienced perspective doesn't do anything for me. I'm like, yeah. you can keep all that to yourself. Well, it like, denies <laughs> completely the possibility that an expert could be surprised, right? That yeah, some, surprised, that somebody, yeah. somebody who's cooked a yeah. hundred, a hundred turkeys, mm-hmm could say, oh, you obviously <laughs> cooked that turkey too long, but then taste it and be like, oh, actually, this is quite moist and juicy. You know what I mean? There, yeah, that's that's yeah. the thing is, right? If, if you take theory, like theory should describe practice. That's the point of theory. It doesn't it doesn't mm-hmm. exist in an abstract to just say, gotcha, right? Yeah, and, and you never want to completely shut out the possibility that, you know, some fluke might have happened and it could have be the <laughs> best turkey ever. Like, you just don't know. and. Yeah. To try to know before you experience is kind of strange. So I, you know, I said that was pretty useless criticism. I think if that person has enough skills to talk about things from such a um, non-direct experiential perspective, they should use that to talk about other things instead of reaching beyond their their scope. Right? Uh, talk about stuff you've experienced instead of wasting your time talking about food you haven't. Big, like you don't need to waste your time or talents. Uh, so anyway, the next question: If you don't like sweet things how valuable is your criticism about a dessert like ice cream? And uh, even though you listed some other things like cheesecake, which is more savory, there's all kinds of desserts out there, some that are much, much, much less sweet than others, um, which is cool. You know, fruit can be a dessert. Yeah, or even uh, some ice creams, right? Some ice creams yeah. have a, a savory component, yeah. Yeah, yes. Yeah. So, like, even though that's true, uh, w- one of the core things I wanted to get at with this question is um, if you feel like people are already pre- determined to have no valuable things to share with you right like we we all know so it's like two sides of a very tricky coin if you don't like something and you go in with sort of a bad attitude the wrong uh lens the the inappropriate context all that stuff it could greatly 
affect the way what you say, what you decide to share, what you decide to point out. Uh, all your criticism, all your comments can just be like the most inconsequential niggling little points about nothing. Like the camera wasn't angled like this. You're like, who cares? Like we talk about the characters, talk about the story. And like it just it just sets it typically can set someone off in such a direction that their critique has no connection to the heart. And I think a, a really important thing to consider is, you know, how much does that affect one's ability to relate to other people? And two, when you're looking for criticism, do you only look for people that already share your thoughts and opinions and then only listen to them? Yeah, I mean, like, man, the the, the other extreme here is just as potentially troublesome, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Where, you know, how valuable is a food critic writing about uh, writing about cheesecake who's who only ever writes about ice cream? You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. if your mm-hmm. beat is so incredibly specific, if you only write about, you know, 4X games, or you only write about first-person shooters... Then, you know, are, are you going to be evaluating a third person shooter as though it's a first person shooter? And what yeah. does that do? Right. So like having like having no interest in what you're writing about or having no previous experience with it. Uh, oh, no. Yeah, is is potentially a problem. But so is being so stuck in your corner that again. Whoa, geez, sorry about that. <laughs> I'm sorry about that, man. So, yeah, like, it's, you know, being so stuck in your corner that, again, like, it eliminates the possibility of being surprised. Yeah. I think that's that's the... So, yeah, yeah, like, both sides of those coins are uh, dangerous. And, you know, I said if you like sweets, but it, like you said, it can be extended to do you have any experience in X? Do you even know what other people like about it? Do you even know about X um, in the first place? Uh, so So many different things to consider. It's really quite a tricky sort of pitfall to consider. Uh, But I think a lot of that will be sorted out uh, with the next few questions, right? So the next one says, how valuable is the food criticism critiquing a recipe uh, if you have little to no cooking skills? So this one, uh, it's not just like uh, an opinion, like I don't like sweets. Or maybe that, that has to do with your taste buds, your tongue, physical attributes, or maybe you just don't like it because it's your opinion and that's how you feel. Who knows? But in this particular question, it's more of a skill-based assessment. So it's like anyone could probably get some knife skills and be a medium uh, quality cook. It's about following instructions and some, you know, fairly non-complex motor skills. We're not talking about being the best chef in the world or anything like that. So really, it's a matter of exposure, experience, and discipline, which is things you can apply and get better at. It's a skill. So if your assessment of something is invalid because you lack skill then uh how do we treat that differently than someone who has sort of a inherent sort of biological disposition against something so Uh, here here you're talking about people writing about twitch platformers who like it it, to write about super meat boy you sort of need to be able to play platformers pretty well is that is that where you're going or well like how much how much do do how much does skill in an interactive uh, experience matter and then because skill is something that can be improved how much do we dismiss rely on or use as a sort of defending point the skill of the the person to qual- uh, validate their criticism oh he's really good at this he must know oh she's really uh you know she's okay at that so i can see where she's coming from or this person has no skill in this why are they talking about this like how much do we use um skill and and personal effort put towards something as a way of qualifying their assessment sure sure i mean like 
somebody with no ability to cook can still write about food they've eaten, but yeah. I but I wouldn't trust them at all to evaluate a recipe, right? I think maybe that's the distinction, right? So like, yeah, yeah. somebody somebody who is not a level designer is going to be bad at critiquing level design in the abstract if they're just looking at maps, right? That thing about like a like like here's a level of Doom versus here's a level of Call of Duty or something like mm-hmm. that, right? Or, uh, or if the game's Mario Maker, you make levels in that game. If yeah, you're yeah, not yeah. good at it. Like, how are we gonna? What do we do about your words? <laughs> <laughs> right, right, completely, completely. Um, man, Mario Makers are actually a really interesting case here, right? Because it, like you, you don't need what you would usually think of as as the technical skills, right? Like you say, like mm-hmm. like cooking, at least uh, you know basic cooking. You don't need you don't need to have gone to the Cordon Bleu to to make eggs, right? It's you can you can be you can be really good at it or, or kind of bad at it, but mm-hmm. it, you know anybody can do it if they apply some effort. Mario Maker makes level design like that, you know, which, yeah, which it, it wasn't before. Uh, but but I do think like there is a different kind of critique you you can apply once you have domain expertise. Uh, R- Robert Yang wrote that thing about the beginner's guide, uh, Davy Reedon's game, like from the point of view of someone who had done modding in the source engine, and like mm-hmm. here's all the weird little show offy things that mean something to people who have made levels in source that that nobody mm-hmm. else would probably catch, right? And that's that's stuff mm-hmm. that I I liked reading a lot, and isn't a complete reading of the game, but it's stuff that I didn't even have the ability to read. You know what I mean? Hmm. But if you were to just kind of look at the wireframes of the game rather than playing it, then I, I don't know how much I would care about just hearing about like, well, in theory, this level's going to play like this, right? Yeah, yeah. And it's kind of like that music example you said. If you get a sheet music and you can't read it, then what can you tell me about the song? <laughs> right, like, if right. You can't, if you can't even get the notes off the page, then how can you tell me what it sounds like? Right, exactly. Is it even, exactly. Is it even worth it? So, whether, yeah, yeah. yeah, and whether whether somebody can read music or not, I'd rather hear what they have to say once they've heard the song played, right? Yeah. But uh, if if you're claiming to be critiquing the sheet music, yeah, you'd better be able to read music. <laughs> yeah, that's a very important part of it. <laughs> so <laughs> yes. the, the the next question: How valuable is a critique of a food critic who takes you know super hot sauce, pours it on everything? This is a question that gets at the heart of um, what you value in experiencing the world. Um, in a very simple way of thinking about it, you either are into things because of you or because of the world. You either like things because you want to feel better about yourself, you want experiences inside your head, you want to feel feels, or you're interested because it came from the world and it's it's not a part of you. It can be shared with others. Other people can uh, interact with it, get their own opinions, and it's your way of learning about others rather than just feeling things for yourself. Mm-hmm. And the person who pours hot sauce on everything, the idea is they are so concerned with their own tastes, right? That they are willing to completely alter the the expressive uh, presentation that is the food in the first place. Like, I, I worked so hard on this food. Here you go. And they just go, and like hot sauce everywhere. And that means they don't even... They didn't even give the food a legitimate chance to sort of uh, be itself or be reflective of the person who made it. And they're just so concerned with like, well, I like hot stuff. I don't really care about anything else. I'm just going to eat it the way I know. Like, what do we do with that kind of uh, attitude? This this question was really supposed to get people to think about why they're in this. Like, is it for the work or is it for themselves? So, so I'd certainly think about, uh, with this example, people who play a game and will immediately complain if it's not perfectly balanced, uh, you know, for competitive multiplayer, not thinking that maybe it's not meant to be. Uh, you know, I mean, I think about the Souls games, right? Like, people play Bloodborne, and it's like, well, the, the meta in this game is all fucked up. And it's like, well, it's a horror <laughs> game. It's not supposed to feel smooth. It's supposed to feel desperate and weird and, and you know... 
so so yeah i mean like i think the hot sauce is where everybody wants everything to be what they want i mean that's a that's a strange sentence to say out loud but i think it's a very pervasive attitude with people who who play games and, and to a certain degree who write about games hmm. yeah pe- people often look at new games uh the changes in games in a series and they go you know what like this is this is not what came before like i want what came before what's with all these changes you didn't need to change it they keep saying things like they didn't need to they didn't of course they didn't need to (laughs) but they wanted to and it was their choice and it's them offering up something hopefully that you would like you know they can't make a game for everybody because everyone's different but the idea is they call the shots and then you take a chance (laughs) you look at what they were thinking you experience something that uh it's less you and more them and there's more of the world than there is of you so there should be plenty (laughs) of uh things to experience if you have that attitude but if there's only one you then it seems to narrow the kinds of experiences you look for narrow the kinds of experiences you like and the kinds of things you talk about that kind of literal solipsism where it really is about um yeah it's it's uh this is a really really pervasive attitude actually in the way people talk about games right that it's and and not just games right like fandoms in general tend to do this uh where you know it it needs to be prepared to your specifications and if it's not then it's it's at least wrong and maybe even a consumer rights issue and so yeah yeah i mean how many how many criticisms have i heard of smash 4 that really just come down to it's not melee you know Mm -hmm. that's but you still got melee melee is this weird unicorn of a game that hasn't been patched and still has an evolving meta right yeah, you don't need and another then, uh, one of those. You have that one. And for games that give motion controls, like why couldn't they just give me default? You're like that's because they like motion controls and <laughs> right, they right. worked hard on it. And they want you to like them too, if you if you can, or at least give it a try. Right, right. I mean, there you could still come to the conclusion that mm-hmm. you know game X would be better without motion controls. I mean, Skyward Sword mm-hmm. is probably a pretty good example, right? Uh, like what do the motion controls actually add, right? Besides a, a brick wall. Uh, but <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm sorry. Are we gonna disagree on Skyward Sword. We can disagree on we're, Skyward we're not Sword. Going, we're not going. We're not going there right we're now. We're not going there. Well, I mean, this this maybe <laughs> well, actually leads so, us back to Ego Raptor. Yeah, yeah. It'll anyway. it'll it'll come yeah. back up in a few minutes. I'm sure. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. But my my point was simply, you have to give it a chance on its own terms, right? You can still disagree with the design decision, but you should do that, you know, based on well, here's what it looks like the downstream effect of that choice was into my experience of the game, as opposed to just I don't like motion controls. Yeah. So, so that's a it's a complicated landscape. Those questions uh, have some overlap. They also have some interesting considerations. Um, it really some people. I mean, the answers are so varied from so many different people. It's just like, oh, so this is why it's so hard to um, to talk about games half the time. I mean, the world is complicated enough, and games are complicated enough. But then even what people expect and value and and look for, and the way people communicate about games. It's, it's all over the place, <laughs> even among people who are within the game's critique, criticism, uh, teaching kind of sphere. So, so with those just, four answers, with those four answers, have you noticed any pattern among like, you know, developers slash players slash, uh, you know, academics or, or anything like that? Does I mean, 15 is not that many, I guess. But yeah, like, it's, it's not <laughs> <laughs> I, I might throw up a, um, a you know, a Google uh survey and see if i can get a lot more responders uh and i'll do that if i if i roll this into some kind of design over time video totally and my my question of course is already a little bad because some people are academics and developers and players right and and most developers are also players if not all (laughs) it's gonna get complicated yeah sure yeah we we really narrowed down 
to the heart of a lot of what's going on here. It's it's tricky. There's not going to be a lot of hard and fast answers. Uh, a lot of things are going to be uh, the the main uh, way you tackle it is just constantly stepping back and being like, okay, so what is this person trying to say? What is valuable about X? What are the different ways that people can approach this? And kind of going from there. Uh, it's not going to be just a a hard and fast criteria that just slams down on people and is unforgiving. I think uh, what we've gone through right now shows a lot of flexibility. Yeah, I agree with that. So I, I have to ask though, I mean, as, as we've been going for an hour or so, mm-hmm. h- how does this relate to sort of the numerical or metrics based evaluation of criticism? Yeah. So let's see, let's see, let's see. So I'll just go over um, the scoring system. I, I didn't mean I didn't mean to run you off your rails. I'm just like no, uh, no, I, I get more all, curious. Yeah, it's all on the notes. It's all right here anyway. Um, so we we created design oriented, and one thing we realized pretty quickly is that we go through a lot of games criticism, but there's still so much more out there. It's hard to find. It's hard to share with people. It's hard for other people to find what they're looking for, and because games are so complex, they need better tools to find exactly what they're looking for. So we have um, we made a search engine. And we have this, it's based on a way of breaking down games that I've been developing with Critical Gaming. So all these, you know, colorful game design categories, uh, you know, mechanics, level elements, enemy elements, power-ups, systems rules, feedback design, um, design space, modes and features, level design, difficulty design story, and yeah, that's all of them. And each of those can be broken down further and further and then further and further. So we really have this, uh, this, this system in place where like, we think talking about games is really better organized when people realize that there, there are these categories in the first place. So we, we piggybacked off that and we created this system and it's made out of five different numerical scores that go from one to five. All right. You with me still? So far, so good. <laughs> okay. So the first one is easy to understand. It's called difficulty. And this basically is a score that says, how familiar do you have to be with the game in order to understand what's being said in this, in this piece of criticism? So if you don't need to be familiar with games at all, then that's a one. Games in general, that's a two. If you have to be familiar with a genre, that's a three. Uh, A specific game in a genre or a specific game series, that's a four. And then uh, a five is you have to be deeply familiar with the technique, history, and terminology of the game. Like you got to be like competitive esports you got to know all the stuff and maybe that article is only written for those people sure if, if, if the yeah if, if, if someone just says jungler and you either know mm-hmm. what that means or you don't sure okay. yeah <laughs> uh scope is the next big category uh, one is uh they are so super zoomed in on one particular aspect of the game they're only really talking about one subtopic like one drilled down mini topic uh we give it a two if it's a um if it's a major topic like level design or enemy design or uh, difficulty design, those are major topics that are, are bigger. So that's a level two. Uh, we give it a three if it's talking about one game and covering any multiple topics within that game. So most people do threes. They, they're used to talking about games like, I'm just going to talk about whatever about this game. So, okay, that's about middle of the road. Uh, when people compare two or more games, that's a four. And when people compare three or more games or an entire genre or whatever like they often do that's a five and that's just scoping and scoping is super important because uh it kind of sets the expectations properly it allows people to find examples that are relevant and you can imagine that comparing two games is significantly harder than comparing one game because if you're like the level in this game is x 
and then you don't even bother comparing it to a, an equivalent example in the other game like it's basically you have to do two to three times as much work just to make a, a comparison and if you do three games it's like four to five times the amount of work and so on and so forth so a one would be i'm going to talk about the goombas in super mario brothers 3 or, or something like that something that specific uh, yeah, or would it, would yeah, it still yeah, count if it was the goombas in every mario game the one would just be the Goomba in Super Mario Bros. 3. Maybe okay. even just the, the walk speed of the Goomba in Super okay. Mario Bros. 3. <laughs> yeah, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. Okay, yeah. I follow. I'm with you. Okay, so um, there's examples. So how many examples that you use to back yourself up? It's just simple. One is one, two is two, three is three, four is four to nine examples, and five is ten plus. So, you know, just trying to keep track of if people actually use the game uh, to back up what they say, or are they just talking in like super abstract uh, la la land, right? And the more examples you have, the more you're grounded in the thing that is shared between people. So it's really important for people to find what it, what it is in the game that pisses them off, or what it what it is that they like, instead of just focusing so much on this sort of top level summary. We want we really want people to zoom in and find the things. So in other words, it feels good to play would be very, very general, whereas talking about, you know, frame analysis and how long it takes to pick up speed. Again, I'll stick with a Mario game, right? Uh, mm. or, or how many frames you jump based on acceleration, stuff like that. That would be, you know, sort of sufficiently particular. Yeah, that's super, uh, super particular. Something as general as like, I like the jump on this level or I, I just like the, the, the opening section in this level. Like, oh, well, at least that's something I can look to, something I can play, something I can uh, see where you're coming from. Gotcha, like gotcha. Martin. Yeah, but but to just generally say the level design is good is, yeah, is not as helpful. It's not it's not good enough. <laughs> like I don't Fair even enough. know. Yeah. Uh, the the last one or the second to last one, you know, it's just a general quality uh, mark. I'll say that one for the end. So let's go to argumentation. Now, argumentation should be the heart. Uh, all these other categories are pretty important for figuring out if the article is speaking on your level, if the person is talking about a lot of stuff and going to bite off more than they can chew or talk about something very specific, if they have examples to back them up themselves up. But argumentation is the, the, the meaning-bearing core of what the critique is doing. And this is uh, five levels again. Number one, if you demonstrate an under- understanding of facts and ideas by organizing examples into categories and giving descriptions. So this is basically saying like top 10 games that use rewinding time. You're like, oh, okay. Like identified a category or or top 10 examples in the game that use uh, the rewind time. Let's say for Zelda Ocarina Time. You're like, okay, so this person's going to take this category, find 10 examples, and then just kind of like slot them into place and just kind of list them basically. So being able to recognize categories or, or make categories and then come up with lists of things, that's pretty important. <laughs> it's something that a lot of people think is easy, but it's as complicated as as the games are complicated. And the more categories the game has, the more possibilities, the more elements, the more uh, nuances to its design space, it gets harder and harder just to isolate exactly one category and then come up with examples. So... You know, even though this is, this is a one on the list, it's not trivial. <laughs> sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I and, – and, and probably there's pushback to the whole idea of, of the listing thing. And it, it's mostly because, like, once you've made that list, which I agree there's a, a certain degree of sophistication to coming up with a useful one, the top ten thing. Like, the ranking mm-hmm. thing is usually just clickbait. 
Like, there's no significant, meaningful difference between what you've chosen as number one and number two, usually. Um, you know? that, that's a good observation. So this that brings us to number two. So, you know, if you just make a naked list, that's just a list. You know, everybody gets it like, oh, you just listed some stuff. You know, your ranking's probably not so solid. But number two says, if you state or imply an explanation for gameplay experiences or player phenomena. So you can state that a design element or choice is good or bad, which people often do. Uh, and you present uh, design questions that frame the issue and potentially introduce useful considerations. So that's the other thing you can do for a number two. So you may not know everything. You may not be as bold to say, yeah, this sucks. This is bad design. But you can say, like, why was this put in the game? I have no idea why they would, you know, X, Y, Z. And you're still describing it. Uh, you're still introducing an interesting question or putting some kind of a uh, implied evaluation on it. So, like, why does, why does Super Mario Galaxy have a lives system? for example? Yeah. If, if you'd say like, oh, when you die, you just get kicked back to the menu and then you go right back to the level. So why have live system? You're kind of, you're kind of setting up the situation. And even if you don't slap that, this sucks or this is great. Like you're <laughs> right, still right. examining its function and purpose. You're zooming into one. one thing and saying, you know, this, th- this affects the experience in, in this specific way. Yeah. Okay. So that's good. If you, you the the tone is there too. Like people can get your tone, and and you imply your meaning by framing the question in any way. So we we wrap all that up in a two, a three is more complicated. Level three, you are when you articulates the complexity and nuance of a topic, principle, or argument, articulates the limitations of a design principle based on subtopics, and and or addresses counter arguments, outlines a model for an experience. So. I showed you that color wheel before with all the topics. And, you did. Uh, you told me to keep it secret, though, so yeah, no one knows about it. it's secret. <laughs> uh, and the, the topics have subtopics. Um, I can just hover over one. It says difficulty design. I can move up one level and talk about skill. Move up one level, talk about knowledge, uh, which we define as uh, one of five parts of ways that you can evaluate skill in the game. You can break that down further and talk about uh, long-term memory so like that just keeps drilling down 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 to talk about a very specific um aspect of a very specific aspect of a very specific aspect so very it gets more and more clear as you go down and we're saying level three when you're able to you know navigate these levels of depth and you're like okay i think this challenge cannot be fair because it relies on short-term memory rather than long-term memory and we know that short-term memory is much, much smaller than long-term. And there's too many bits of information in this challenge for the player to learn it quickly enough. Therefore, I think this is unfair. That kind of statement, <laughs> that kind of analysis, it's detailed, it's accurate, it's based on these um, these concepts, it's these terms, and it's, it's setting up something that's uh, much more approachable, much more accurate and descriptive than uh, just saying like, well, I hated this, I died too much, right? Sure, yeah. But in, in general, addressing counter arguments, uh, outlining a model of experience, you got to find some way to get in the detail and like describe what's happening in the situation and describe why it's happening. So people people often do the um, the outline version in terms of imagining what the player is thinking. Like if I when I first played this, I wouldn't know what to do in the kind of show footage. And then like and then something hits me off the top of the screen. How unfair is that? Well, they're outlining what the player would likely experience based on 
you know, the room layout, their their typical expectations up until that point in the game, and so on and so forth. And and doing all those kinds of things is definitely a higher level than one and two. It requires recognizing more details. It requires um, understanding how those details work and fit into sort of a an interactive play space or a typical player experience. Yeah, which I mean, like I, I think of another Ego Raptor video, right? His Mega Man uh, X thing mm-hmm. does pretty precisely that. That is the one of the seminal <laughs> uh, player perspective video, like of all time, where mm-hmm. he's like, "Let me tell you what a beginning player." would think and even though i don't think his assessment was accurate to what beginning players actually think and feel he presented a case at the very least and that allowed people to wrap their brain around uh how the the tutorial level design would influence a player who is quote-unquote experiencing for the first time it makes a lot of sense yeah yeah when he was he was even like there was a layer more on that because it's like here's what what if i was a player who is as clueless and and panicky (laughs) as tutorials seem to assume players are you know which most players are not you know either they're either they're 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 they might they might be clueless and they might be panicky but they're usually not both <laughs> so that, that's a level three level four presents and defends opinions by making judgments about information validity of ideas quality of work can break down an argument or opinion example into quantifiable clear objective parts to create a criteria and this is the thing you were talking about before a lot of people say a lot of stuff a lot of people can describe some things. A lot of people can throw or throw around or imply reasons, but it's, it's a much, much, much higher level to be able to create a criteria. And because that requires understanding the parts of the work in the first place, understanding their, their subparts, the subtopics, um, being able to evaluate things based on um, based on how they work, right? So like we all know that the, the color of the Goomba is not an important factor in Mario Brothers. I mean, World 1-2 has dark blue Goombas. World 1-1 has brown Goombas. doesn't matter. They they function exactly the same. So we can clearly go, well, yeah, color doesn't matter. But you know what does matter? Their hitbox and their movement and uh, the fact that they bump off of pipes and stuff. And even just talking through it, we can create a criteria of the things that matter um, as far as what makes enemies tricky in that game and things that don't matter. And that is higher level thinking. It requires... Um, carefully examining the parts of something which kind of requires you to break it down in the first place and and you got to put your value statement on why you think movement speed of the enemies in mario is far less important than uh the fact that some enemies turn around on platforms and some enemies fall off like you got to make a call one way or another but in doing so you are setting up the the listener the reader in such a way where they can step inside of your opinions and and then also step inside the game and be like oh so this is what that person thinks that person really thinks because red koopas don't fall off platforms it really makes them that much more dangerous this is interesting and even if you don't agree you are you are in such a detailed and well articulated headspace that we have to give that a higher level on the um the the scoring because it's rare and two it's so helpful and informative and effective yeah, yeah, and here's where, to your point, you have to be super clear about what it is you're arguing. Because if you're talking about enemy difficulty, then yeah, blue Goombas are irrelevant. If you're talking about aesthetics and tone, then, oh my god, this this enemy I recognize is now blue. This 8-bit game just got a lighting engine. That's amazing, right? <laughs> so it, it, it the which details are relevant versus, versus which are irrelevant depends entirely on what it is you're, what it is you're analyzing and what you're trying to do with that analysis. Mm. 
Yeah, and that, I mean, you can, like you said, like you were in, implying or indicating, you can point out anything that you think is interesting in a game, right? Any visual element, uh, auditory element, interactive element, whatever, story element, take your pick. But certainly you need to understand that those are kind of separate domains. People experience them, or people experience those things differently. And you can't just fly back and forth between talking about the color of Goomba and then like how hard it is to beat Bowser. You're like that that doesn't that doesn't fit. <laughs> like there's a, there's a disconnect there, and that that's just. Well, we can get into more of that later. But. Yeah, I mean that's that's actually super interesting, and we can get into it in more detail if you want. But like you know, blue Goombas behave precisely like brown Goombas. Red-shelled Koopas do not behave precisely like green-shelled Koopas. So yeah. having some color variants that do make a gameplay difference and others that do not creates mm-hmm. this for a first-time player, which it's it's really hard to even remember what it was like to play Super Mario Brothers for the first time, but creates this paranoia where you have to figure out what's different and what's not. So that yeah. is relevant. So it, it's not always easy to separate aesthetics from gameplay from difficulty from you know mm-hmm. from from all that stuff i i, I talked to um, mark flurry who made thumper uh, just recently oh, cool. and he cool. you know i mean like we talked a lot about how that game you can't really separate the aesthetics from the gameplay i mean like the fact that it feels thumpy <laughs> when you hit stuff <laughs> is as important to how it feels as a rhythm game as as anything else as level design as timing as calibrated difficulty like it, it's really difficult to separate the elements of that game from one another without losing what's interesting about it you know mm. so anyway that's that that maybe uh i don't think that breaks the system but it definitely nuances it you know yeah and level five uh articulates why a topic principle argument or argument is important frames the entire issue slash argument concerning scope scale experiential or cultural differences so a level five basically takes the all the work that's put into level four uh argumentation and says Okay, but now I need to tell you why this way of looking at it or why these details are important. And they they can do so um, in a number of ways, but that's just basically saying like, well, either this is important in a functional way or this is important to me because this is what I think when I, you know, see these details or see this arrangement of whatever. And then they can frame even that assessment that they give in terms of scope, scale, and experience. So they could say like, if you have played other Mega Mans, this is not going to be that big of a deal. These disappearing blocks are going to be like, oh, those again. They can say, um, if you've had experience in this level of Mega Man, if you fight this robot boss before this one, then this jump should be easy. But if not, this jump is going to be like, why they put a pit down here? I've never had a chance to, to do this. So you can start to outline uh, if other people have other views or opinions, where they might be coming from, why they might be feeling that uh, or if, if they have other, uh, any kind of differences between people, cultural differences, differences in scale, like the more people that play this game, it's going to change the nature of what blah, blah, blah is, these leaderboard issues, metagame issues, whatever. And that's why uh, the level five is at the highest level. It's basically saying, yes, everything you've said before, making categories, implying um, game design reasons, um, articulating and modeling experiences, and then creating a criteria now all of that work you put into it, I'm just going to like multiply it and be like, this is this new way of thinking about the game that allows you to better relate to other people, better understand the game, and maybe even navigate into other sort of opinions. Like if you, do, if you thought something was so cheap before, and I explained to you, maybe you thought it was cheap because you didn't realize that the audio cues were like this, and maybe you played with the sound off or your own soundtrack, and then you'd be like, oh, I had no idea. And then if you experience it, maybe it'll change your opinion. Maybe, maybe understanding how things work and why other people like it will improve how you like it or at least give you a chance to and that's 
pretty important. And that's why it's a level five. People don't really do this. People really don't get to this level. And uh, but if you if they do, it just empowers people to connect to games and other other players, other critics in a much better way. Okay, I mean, I don't know if we're ready to talk about this, but I would maybe argue the Ego Raptor Zelda video is doing pretty precisely that. Okay, so we can we can. Okay, so the last the last uh, yeah, criteria go for it, go for it. is quality, and it's just it's the general kind of uh, assessment, and it says. Um, you know, you start with five points with quality and you, t- you take away one for every sort of infraction. Uh, but and some of these are just tone things and some are argumentative things, but I just threw them all in here. So if you're unnecessarily harsh or rude and you have discriminatory language, uh, that's, a, that's a, it's a thing. If you're off topic right, and you don't know how to stay on topic, that's a thing. If you have a clickbaity or inflammatory title or content, you know, that's a thing. Uh, unnecessary exaggerations. Uh, lack of cohesiveness or coherency in your argumentation, failing to complete thoughts or statements. If you just leave all your sentences hanging and you don't actually finish your thoughts, that's a bit of an issue. Failing to compare like thing to like thing. So if you're making a comparison, you're like, oh man, this enemy is so hard. Uh, And then in Zelda, like the basic enemies, the Octorok, the Zora, Look at how look at how they move in the level and they attack you. And then your comparison to Mario is, look, this Goomba's blue. Moving on, like that wasn't that wasn't the valid comparison. Like you talked about movement with Zelda, and then you talked about color with Mario. So like you got to talk about Goomba movement and then Koopa movement and like make make a good comparison. So when people when people fail to do that, you know that's a knock. Um, a clarity issue due to lacking of defining terms or defining scope. Uh, I think a lot of people have their own definitions for things which is fine but when they start to sort of contradict themselves or create a lot of ambiguity because you feel like they don't have a good definition or they didn't bother to um state it for the video that that's an issue uh when people use rules of thumb design ideas and buzzwords without like explaining it or backing it up they just kind of throw it out there as if it's a truism then that's an issue because that's not it's not informing the audience it's just kind of regurgitating um, phrases that they've heard on the internet so that doesn't really help us understand what the games are doing and then if people this is a pet peeve of mine but when people start to make excessive conjecture regarding the thoughts lives and opinions of other parties which mostly is focused on game devs they're so stupid why didn't they do this they're lazy and you're like please like you don't know these people all you're doing is playing the game at the very end of a long development process you don't have to to humanize that you don't have to make like the whole company you don't have to personify it and then make that person a, like the lazy or a demonize them like you can kick all that language and cut it out and just talk about the game if you don't like it just say you don't like it you don't have to make up this story that the developers are lazy and they hate you and they're out to get core gamers and all this stuff leave all that off the table please yeah we this came up a little bit in our color splash discussion because for you like mm-hmm. the red card version of that is the no man's sky developers clearly hate us and are liars and are terrible and didn't try <laughs> and whatever the yellow yeah. card version would be well they were clearly trying to do this and they clearly did not succeed at that right yeah there's yeah. there's a, there's a way to do that where if you're if you're reading the intent into the game like if you're talking about what the game intends in a semiotic way that's fair game but to but to say you know based on an interview I'm pretty sure the developer wanted to do this gets it, it's just it's a different kind of writing entirely it's less focused yeah. on the object itself and, and I think and, it just in not only is it inaccurate like you you didn't do your research you didn't find out what the developers lives are like or even take words out of their interviews like people just make up stuff they're like we don't need 
to distract ourselves from the real heart. If the real heart of the matter is this game pissed me off and I hate it, then please focus on that. There's nothing wrong with being mad at a game or that a game exists, but you don't have to be like, and they hate me and we hate them now. We're going to, you know, it just leads into all kinds of behavior that's not helpful and and, and harassment and all kinds of stuff that it's not necessary. Agreed there, yeah. So so as you're going through all of these, uh, I, I notice, and this, this may relate very closely to Ego Raptor, this mm-hmm. is where somebody who's attempting to do critique in the form of comedy could get dinged, right? Mm-hmm. Not because they've, they've uh, done bad critique, but because they're trying to keep all those balls in the air. And mm-hmm. the intent of like trying to get a laugh is not always going to line up perfectly with the intent of making an analytical point locally it's, right it's true it's, it's true so it's it's just it's not, not that the two are incompatible and not that not that you should only be like so, so only self-serious people get get graded yeah. on this uh, on this rubric or whatever but that it's 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 a different skill set that intersects but does not overlap completely with the skill set of writing mm-hmm. a critique yeah like eager after almost always gets dinged for making some kind of inappropriate joke and you're like you know we give them a lot of leeway because you know it's the internet and these these are like kids like we get it we're free to say whatever we want and however we want to, but there, there's like a line and you want to make sure your jokes are like tonally in the same ballpark as the subject matter that you're critiquing. But, you know, and everyone knows that he goes a little too far. Um, I've, ta- I've heard stories of how people want to share his videos to game design students in collegiate uh, situations from professors and universities. And then they can't because he like makes inappropriate jokes. You're like, well, I either have to get an edited version or I have to not show it because at some point, you do realize this is not appropriate when talking about Mega Man. When talking about Mario, like, why would you say? Yeah, that? well, the, the the Mega Man one has some, some, you know, like the whole thing with with you know, like like smacking or smacking. What, who's it? Who's it? Rush or roll? Uh, or roll, roll, roll. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That that stuff, like, 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 I think we maybe need to make a distinction between jokes that are are fucked up and add a whole level of. You know, I mean, like, I honestly think a lot of disagreements between academics and non-academics could be resolved if instead of problematic, we just said fucked up, right? So stuff that's just fucked up versus stuff that it's just like, well, I don't want to hear the word fuck in a classroom. Like that, yeah. I think we maybe need to get over. Like, who cares, you know? But when you're, when you're like, really seriously, though, like in a college classroom, everybody is over 18. Like, it's just like... I don't know. I feel like we hamstring ourselves a lot with with trying to apply the standards and practices of network TV to the internet. Because yeah. I like your students have heard the word "fuck." It's not going to warp their fragile minds or make it impossible for them to absorb the criticism, right? Yeah. But yeah. I think the I think the the, the hitting uh, like like yeah the the <laughs> that shit like that whole series of jokes <laughs> maybe goes into a different category where it it it's it it enters into a whole other discussion and is on the wrong side of that discussion that it doesn't intend, you know, just for a cheap laugh. So yeah. fair my, enough there, right? Yeah, my thing is, if you focus entirely on the games, you wouldn't have a problem. Uh, so everything <laughs> else fair. that you That's add fair. to it is but, just But, I mean, di- digressions can be really useful. Um, so I'm thinking specifically of, uh, of uh, oh my god, Marsh Davies, uh, when he wrote about uh, Dark Souls. He, yeah. And in fact, his whole, um, his whole series, uh, which, is, which is called Fail Forward. Uh, just about the parts of games that don't work and why they don't work and stuff like that. He has this thing where sometimes the screen will go, you know, not entirely brief digression. Uh, and so in, in the context of Dark Souls, he talked about Arthurian myths and how, uh, you know, like that's an example of how myths can be political. And that's that ties into Dark Souls because your quest is framed by different NPCs in different ways. Talks about how Gwyn lines up with King Arthur, whatever, right? That stuff's not in the game. That stuff isn't even really about the game, but it does help you to understand the points he's making about the game. Yeah, you know? it still sounds like he was on topic there. Um, 
yeah, there, there would be no dings for something like that. And, you know, like I said, we give people a lot of leeway because we understand this is games criticism, right? And it's mostly on the internet, so you should know what kind of a minefield you're stepping into. Uh, but... So, I think I can guess, but why on those criteria is the Ego Raptor Zelda video... You said it was the, the lowest ranked of all of his uh, sequelitis videos, yeah? Yeah, yeah, and, and probably the lowest rank, some of the lowest rank in terms of quality up for Zelda content. But uh, as you might imagine, let's see, I'm, I'm looking at it right now. Let me see if I can do a share screen so you can have... Let's say even though our, um, our search engine is incredibly slow and not really usable, it works. <laughs> that's, that's at least something. I typed in Ego Raptor here into the author or source field and hit enter. It, he only has four things, these four, um, mostly these four sequelitis videos. And as you can see, each of them talk about s different topics. They're all color-coded. Um, the here. colors are those domain areas you were talking about. Is it level yeah, design yeah, yeah. or something? Yeah. I'll show that real quick, just because who doesn't like color? Ooh, color. Ooh, color. And I mean, so so again, that's one of the most useful things about what you're up to, right? Because I think a lot of people will talk about level design as though it's the sum total of game design, for example. Uh, and yeah. it's a really, really important part of game design, but it doesn't work the same way across every genre. And some, you yep. know, some discussions aren't actually about that and, and, and so on mm -hmm. and so on. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Where, where am I? That's my notes. Where is sequelized? Right here. Okay, so yeah, you can see that his Zelda video. I mean, it's his longest video, I believe. It's 30 minutes. His other videos hover around... 1015 if I remember correctly so uh, you know already biting off quite a lot uh, he's compared to yeah. games he's compared to games across all of the sequelitis so like he's always doing comparisons so he's already on a pretty high scope uh, but for the Zelda video he actually talks about the original Zelda Link to the Past Ocarina of Time Link Between Worlds and a little bit of Skyward Sword so that's like the entire s series like that's enough games to qualify for the level 5 scope should mm -hmm. be five. That should be a five, but whatever. It's four. <laughs> um, difficulty. He, he he makes his videos. They should all be around the same difficulty because he, he aims at a mass mass audience. Uh, people, you have to know a little bit more about Castlevania to get that one. Difficulty is about where we expected. I think this is a two. I need to put numbers on the, the UI, but yeah. <laughs> sure. yeah. So his, his difficulty is pretty low. So he wants his videos to hit the most amount of people. Understandable. Makes sense. I'd do it if I could, but I suck at He's toning my stuff down. Um, let's see. You know what I always do? So if, yeah. I, if I'm talking to an audience who I don't think is literate in video games, I assume they are literate in like academia or they're film nerds or whatever. So I end up alienating a whole other group of people with different weird language. <laughs> so yeah, it's an easy trap to fall into. Uh, as far as argumentation goes, he does always shoot higher than most. Um, he's always trying to give reasons for uh, what he thinks he's always trying to outline some kind of model that's why the whole player experience thing that came up with sequelitis mega man he does that often that's how he thinks through things so he's already you know doing a lot of interesting things in order to try to convey his points and since his videos are so long and he likes to put video clips on stuff he's always going to be near maxed out or maxed out on examples always a good thing to see um at least when you're watching a year raptor video you know he's He's, he puts the examples on the screen. This is a four. So he probably had around eight, nine examples on this Castlevania one. But on this Mega Man X, he has 10 plus. 10 plus is so rare. Just letting you know. Across all games criticism, 10 plus is so rare. Most people just don't put a lot of examples in. So like that's all good for um, Eager Raptor in his style. 
and all of that's great. But um, <clears throat> the reason why. So in the quality so, assessment, yeah, yeah. I didn't... So you at home can't see the screen right now, right? So so quality is, I believe, a one, right? Uh, yeah, so, it so, could have been a zero. Yeah, and <laughs> this is all public, so I'll, I'll link to the page that we're looking at uh, so that you, you at home can follow along. So the quality, I didn't tell you, but you don't get dinged for more than one infraction on the same type. So you can, mm. you know, go make as many curse words and say crazy stuff mm. as you want. You're not going to keep following because you, your video is longer. That doesn't make any sense. But in general, we just note that if it's a if it hits one of those points and it's a, a notable thing, we mark it. So like a lot of people get dinged for like one thing or another, no big deal. A lot of the average quality ratings are like four, four point two five, stuff like that. But Eagleraptor in his Zelda video in particular could have gotten below zero. I didn't want to. I didn't even know if our UI could handle that, so I made it a one. But as far as like <laughs> he got being, the gentleman's F. I see. <laughs> as far as being coherent and making like to like comparisons and and um in talking about developers and what they were thinking and all all these different points like he was just dropping and dropping and dropping and and that has like a serious detractive effect on um what he's trying to say and even what he's trying to convey and like sure whatever opinion that he has it's whatever but you know and the method he's trying to approach that is good he's doing like a lot of the good uh a lot of good stats with making examples and 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 doing and going step by step but the reason that the quality marks are so important to be aware of is they seriously detract from even his ability to convey what he feels and what he thinks uh because he's he's doing himself a disservice he's really cutting back on what he's trying to say so so there are notes here this this site's um up i can show you the notes sequel so yeah so i went through his whole video and I just sat there making bullet points of some of the stuff he says and then, uh, you know, categorizing it with the color code so you can see, like, level design, difficult design, feedback. He talks about camera. He talks about enemy design right here. He talks about level design with dungeon keys. He talks about this idea of waiting. So that's a design space thing because he's talking about the balance of, of uh, offense to defense, and he calls that waiting. He talked about exploring here. It's level design story here. Um, all these comments, and I've timestamped just about everything he said. Uh, level design, so on and so forth. And the thing that's just really annoying is he says something and he doesn't really have a reason for it to be whatever he thinks, but in his extreme dislike for Ocarina of Time and his, in his appreciation for the original Zelda and Link to the Past, he doesn't make any logical statements he doesn't actually make a comparison he doesn't actually point out design issues he just says something that's kind of sounds like a category s describes the original zelda and says this is great and then just says e either ocarina of time doesn't do it and it's bad or he just finds something completely different to talk about so i'm asking you to prove a negative here but but for example like what's a what's a non-category category that he uses Let's just go to... I think I saw... If I'm, I'm looking over your shoulder over the internet, which is a weird feeling, but I think the waiting thing, it looked like you said, was... Yeah, uh, we'll, we'll go to that one. I'll make it bigger so you can... <laughs> okay. Because, I mean... Possibly. To, to me, I mean, like, I so so if the argument is the, the issue of waiting is not exclusive to Ocarina of Time, agreed. If the argument is there's a hell of a lot more downtime to a given battle in Ocarina of Time than there is in Link to the Past, which I think is the argument he's actually making, however well or badly he's making it, I mean, isn't there? So, let's see. The perfect example of Eagle Raptor grabbing random examples. Much of the same weighting applies to Link to the Past. Link to the Past mirror example is not the same thing. 
Oh, okay. So he starts there, and then he makes an example about length of the past. And, for those um, who, for those who haven't seen the video or haven't seen it lately, right? The example here is that to go between worlds in length of the past, if you're in. Uh, if you're, if you're, you, you can just use the mirror to go between one world and another, and then you have to go back to the point where you warped to get back to the light world, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas in Ocarina of Time, you have to go to a specific location, do a specific thing at that location, and then you have to get back to wherever you were, mm-hmm. right? So yeah. why isn't that valid? So traveling between time is not the same thing as just switching between the light and the dark world. And in a very general sense, like, you can't just say, oh... It's some kind of traveling. I'm going to find an example of one game that's short and an example of another game that's long and be like, this is the reason because they're two different games. You have to actually uh, talk about how they function within the game. So let's say if, if in Ocarina of Time you had to travel between time like all the time, talk to a guy you want to travel back, talk to a guy again to do something. Every single NPC, every single challenge, every puzzle, you're constantly traveling back in time. Then yeah, traveling back to the uh, higher... Uh, Traveling back to Hyrule Castle, going to the Temple of Time, doing all that process, and then going all the way back out would just be a chore. It would be terrible. But that's not how the game is structured. This game is structured to where there are critical points where you travel forward and back in time. And even though you have the leisure to do so, um, you don't need to do it rapidly or even close to rapidly. You do a lot of work as adult Link, and you don't almost ever have to travel back to young Link to do most of your stuff uh, at that point in the game. There are a series of side quests, which are all optional. And a lot of these side quests involve either understanding how the passage of time has worked or doing something in both time periods so that you can trigger sort of a time paradox and events and so on and so forth. So, but that's about, that's optional. And two, it rewards your exploration of both characters, space, and time because you're putting together this more complex uh, the more complex world because time is a factor in this game and it's not really a factor in most games. So if you notice a detail and the girl says, when I was young, blah, 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 you're like, that's interesting. What were you like when you were young? And then you go back in time and you can explore it. That's something that you can do at your leisure. And the non, um, because it's a side quest, it's not mandatory. And it's something you're supposed to and expected to do either because you're curious about it or because you do it over time and you just put the pieces together. But to, there's, to there's not the thing they, like a link to the past where you're switching back and forth somewhat rapidly to get to a piece of heart up on a hill or something. Yeah. And, and that, yeah, yeah. And, and most of the time, even in link to the past, you're traveling between the light and the dark world just to get around unique obstacles uh, between the two worlds, just to drive home the fact that the dark world is a dark version of the same world. So some of their structures are similar. Some don't where there's a bridge broken here. There may not be broken in the real world and you got to navigate that. But you also but do you the dimension to... hopping stuff. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I was just gonna say like, yeah. you do rescue people from the dark world and bring them to the light world. And like, mm. you know, like it, like the, some of that, the, the, ta- the equivalent yeah. of a time paradox does exist there. I mean, the argument you're making isn't really that the system in o- in Ocarina of Time isn't cumbersome. You're just saying it doesn't matter that it's cumbersome because it's used less. No, it's, it's not. So the issue is, you have to isolate what you're talking about. Are you talking about side quests, a mandatory level challenge? Then you've got to also consider the, 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 the range and freedom that you have to do something like that. So uh, we all know there's skill floors and skill ceilings to games. And sometimes the, the skill floor way is the least interesting. Hopefully it's the least interesting. And sometimes it involves the most amount of sort of tedious steps. But it doesn't mean that's like the normal way to play it, the expected way, or even the good way to play it. It's just a possibility because games... Once they give you a little freedom to do stuff, they also give you the freedom to do things not so well. So pointing out the fact that you can in Ocarina of Time 
take the long way and like constantly go back and forth between the temple just to check things in one time versus the other does it isn't it or like comparing that to a situation in link to the past where you have to uh switch back and forth between time is not a valid comparison like there, you could you could if you want to chart like the critical path and if you chart out the critical path and say this is exactly what you need to do and then compare the timing that'd be a little bit more accurate but you got to look at how the whole game is played and the nature of um side quests in general how they're supposed to be done uh you know, off and on and based on the player's curiosity and then the details are supposed to add up over time. But you don't compare something like that to a mandatory in order to get into this temple, you have to um, address that bully in Link to the Past. In order to do so, you got to switch back and forth. And in order to do so, that means you got to find the right place to use your your mirror. Your uh, What is it called? It's not the lens of truth, but it's the, 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 the mirror. Uh, you're talking, yeah, the, the, God, what is it called? The mirror and link to the past you're talking about. Um, yeah, yeah. It, is it the mirror of something or the, yeah, I, I don't remember. It's I'm just going to call it, I'm just going to call it the mirror. <laughs> the mirror. I mean, that's what I always call it. Yeah. I mean, and, and again, like the, the names of items don't matter as much because you just have like a graphical representation of your full inventory and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. So, so, so your contention is that the light world and the dark world in link to the past and the, the, the light era and the dark era in Ocarina of Time are, are more superficially similar than they are functionally or mechanically similar. And to make yeah, a comparison between switching between the dark and the light and switching between time periods is not really a like to like comparison yeah and and you'd have to break it down by actual gameplay uh gameplay categories like dungeon uh mandatory uh unlock sequence to get to a new area or dungeon side quest and then then you have to observe what it is on the map and so many other factors so analyzing the level design in that way is a really high level thing because even as i'm talking you have to consider timing mandatoriness sequencing uh what else is around you hint systems all this in order to guide you towards a better way of playing and if you just pick one example and be like look you had to go and trek all the way back like that's not that's not an example it's not a thing like sure everything in the game world is in a location the fact that you have to travel there sometimes doesn't make your case it doesn't prove your point and well, so, and, and so what this- Sorry, I was just going to say, what then about the argument about moment to moment interactions? Uh, so the really, really long animation when you open a chest or uh, the, f- the fact that when you're fighting enemies, A, you can't really explore and fight at the same time. You've got a Z target and focus on the enemy. And then most enemies have a period of time during which you're not supposed to do anything except wait for that period of time to end so that you can attack them. Whereas in the, the original Zelda or Link to the Past, you can always reposition or drop a bomb or, or, or whatever. So... For, for If I were doing an analysis like that, one, I would look at every enemy in the game instead of cherry picking, right? So I would, whenever I make comparisons, I do the full comparison. Sure. If you want to talk about combat enemy design, you compare all the enemies, right? Just make a list and do the homework, do the work. Sure. But I mean, uh, what he gives, he, he gives, he probably gives five to 10 examples, right? So he gives a bunch of examples of enemies in, I have it written here. Under the red one, Skultula's. The clams stick uh, out. Skulltulas, Wolfholes, uh, Skulltulas, Wolfholes, Clams, Lizardmen, Deacon Scrub, Stalfo. Okay. So he just lists a bunch of enemies, and his claim was the only thing you can do to these people is wait until they open themselves, and then that gives you an opportunity. Then he says a whole bunch of things, including it's not even fun, and he implies that you can't do anything otherwise. All of that is not true. Okay. So some of the enemies are really defensive, but defense is a important and and commonly understood part of combat, right? So if enemies just rush at you all the time, those enemies are only offense. If enemies put up a shield, 
the only or the only way to make them defensively is either if they move away from you or have some kind of defensive function. If they have a shield, then you're like, okay, well that shield has to work, right? You can't just attack through people's shields and still have that function be sort of intact and, and coherent. So okay, some enemies have shields, and they're like, okay, well then then what's the combat like beyond that? Each each one of these enemies is different, right? Uh, the Stalfo, let's see, the Lizardman doesn't really put up a good defense. You can just rush him down. He is not, he's not a turtling enemy. So listing that with the rest of these guys is not really congruent. And they even showed footage of him cutting the Lizardman three times. And as the Lizardman jumped over him, he hit him. I'm like, then what are you talking about? That's not a, a waiting turtling moment. You're going all out and hitting him. Didn't make sense. Deku Scrubs are your classic hideaway, runaway enemy. But then you just stand at the appropriate distance and... They pop up, and then you can either hit them with a with a ranged attack or reflect it with your shield or whatever if you have none. Mm-hmm. So, like, oh, that's a classic example of a ranged enemy, something you have to attack at a range. There's no way to make a really clearly designed enemy that you need to attack via range if they're rushing you down all the time. It's like a very clear, common enemy type in so many types of spatially oriented games. So it's not really about waiting. It's about using the appropriate offense to take them out. And Deku Scrubs also like to attack in groups. So it's about, you know, understanding your spatial position relative to all of them and making sure you're not going to be pinched forward and backwards and all that stuff. Like, it makes sense. There's so many more considerations and axes to analyze each of these. And waiting is not actually a design category. It's not actually a thing. If you want to talk about uh, offensive and defensive AI, if you want to talk about functional roles within the, the grander design space, those are the real topics that Eager Raptor should talk about. But ultimately, his comments are essentially from the perspective of, I think these enemies are dumb, and I'm going to make a list about them. And he didn't really experiment all the different ways to fight them. And that shows in his analysis. This is why sure. we were talking about the, uh, the skill-based thing. Like, if you, if you didn't really do your homework to see if you could actually hit these enemies, then sure, you're probably going to be what, like the chef who's trying to critique something without having, uh, without sort of doing the skill-based work to, to, to figure out what they can actually do. So waiting is not, waiting is like not a thing to point out. It's not a, a design topic, but he's using that as a way to try to talk about various, various different aspects of enemy and level design, but it's too much. He doesn't really have the language to articulate it. Sure, sure. I mean, so, so if the argument is he doesn't articulate the point, well, fair enough, right? I think, I think, I think you've made that case in a, in a way that makes sense. But waiting is absolutely a category. I mean, like whether he's whether he's using it or not, and whether it's accounted for in your current model or not. Early three D games or any game that tries to be cinematic does contain more time where the player can't do anything but passively watch than other kinds of games. You know, no, like it's, not, it's also so waiting. Waiting is like a feeling that Eager Raptor sort of excessively feels with three D Zelda because he doesn't like it in the first place. But like what you're saying about cinematic stuff and all that, like it doesn't really it doesn't really pan out because you're not making the um, the like-to-like comparison and Eagle Raptor certainly didn't. Well, he did, with the, the origi- he did with the so chest. So if you play right? the original Mario Brothers, I hear people sometimes complain about that little cutscene between World 1-1 one, one, and 1-2. One, yeah, it's a cutscene. It's a small cinematic that you can't skip. And like, you, So that's you waiting? And- it's, I don't think it's an onerous amount of waiting, yeah. but it is waiting. Yeah, but like, so then that's, that's the thing. Like every single moment in every game like after the the frame that the controller registers your input can be called waiting. And the and the the whole point I'm trying to make is that whole way of thinking about games doesn't get 
at what how they're designed. It doesn't get at what the developers intended. It doesn't even get at how other people experience the game or why some people don't like the games because if waiting, quote-unquote, is in the games he likes and in the games he doesn't like, then he's just not making a fair assessment on to figure out what he's even feeling in the first place. Sure, so yeah, but, but developers talk about waiting, right? Usually in terms of negative space. So so like the amount of time between the time your character dies and the time you get to try again, right? The the amount of downtime between death and retry. If there's too much of that, you'd probably call that waiting, right? It's Or is there a better even, or is there a better term for it, right? Like it's, it's it's not so like the fact that people can be upset that they want to play more uh while while they they are lacking control in any instance is not it's not like a category. It's just realizing that people can be impatient or upset about just about anything. So it doesn't sure, really matter it, how fast it doesn't ma- it doesn't matter how fast the game is or how or how slow or, or what their it just really matters what their expectations are. So even though developers sometimes say like we wanted to make sure the reset timer was fast because we didn't want people waiting. Like, yeah, that's just acknowledging this idea that some of the, the players are gonna want to retry uh, quickly because they're dying quickly because the game's a certain kind of fairness where mistakes happen often and you kind of want to make that experience smooth but well let's give a really concrete example though cooldowns yeah right what are cooldowns if not a game mechanic based around waiting they you use something and then you have to <clears throat> excuse me you have to you you have to wait a certain amount of time before you can use it again and that has gameplay functions it encourages you to use other things and to be sparing with that particular technique but fundamentally what the game mechanic is is when you use x you then have to wait x amount of time y amount of time before you can use x again so waiting it's not that you have to wait it's not that waiting is the thing that you do because you can't use the move again you can do other things in the meantime so to to have this idea like oh okay uh, the waiting is the word that we're going to use to talk about situations where you can't do anything that you want at any time. Shouldn't that be every single situation in every <laughs> single video game? Like, as, that's as what I'm saying. Like, like, you've jumped as Mario, the, so you can't jump again until you hit the ground. Yeah, is like the, the way you're talking about it isn't isn't even phrased in a way that it even makes any kind of distinction between moments uh, that you think you're talking about in every single other moment in every video game. Mario shoots a fireball. He can't shoot another one into another like 0.2 seconds. Well, like, yeah, because... That's just the timing of things. You can't make video games that have any sense of time without having limitations on when inputs can be registered, what actions show up when, and when you can act again. Like that is every single video game, turn-based, real-time, or otherwise. But to to call it waiting doesn't make sense. But there is a distinction. Sorry, I was going to say there's a distinction between the amount of time between two fireballs in Mario and... A period of gameplay time, whether it's a fraction of a second or seconds or a 20-minute unskippable cutscene, where the player has no agency, right? So, so like, when you're talking, opening a chest... Let's hit stun. Hit stun in a video game. You get hit, you can't control. Your character's reeling back in pain. Mega Man slides off platforms. Link rears back, maybe falls off a cliff. No control, but nobody complains. It's because the they do. They do with ghouls are, and goblins. I mean, like, they but complain. But there's too much of like, it. <laughs> that game. But, like, that's, that's the game, and... Sometimes all I'm saying is when people use words like waiting, they're really not making a design uh, analysis or a design comment. They're just really saying there's parts about this game I don't like. And because I, I don't like it when they occur and I can't do anything about it, I'm really not going to like it. But it's not a thing about the game in itself. And it's not the fact that they're waiting. And it really has less to do with how much agency and control they have. It's just the fact that they're experiencing something that they they don't like and it's painfully obvious in those situations because if you take a, another game with hit stun and combos and stuff uh and then 
you just change the context to where the player likes the game. Nobody complains about being in a combo, except for, you know, they do, but let's just say they don't. Like, if you're in a Marvel vs. Capcom 3, you put your opponent in a combo, they can't do anything unless you drop the combo. So, like, okay, they have no control, but that that is the expectations and the nature built into that game. Some combos last for quite a long time. It's part of the game. It's why they like it. It's how it's defined, and everybody rolls with it that plays. But you, you can look at any situation on a micro level, macro, cutscenes, interactive, otherwise, and just say, hey, this is how games work. But if you don't like it, you don't need a special phrase for it and call it waiting. Just say, I don't like this. But it's not, it, it is more specific than not liking it. I mean, so, so again, the treasure chest example is, come to think of it, probably the cleanest example. In, in uh, Link to the Past, opening a treasure chest takes, I, I don't know the exact time, but l- less than three seconds, let's say, right? Yeah, it's instant. And then you have a text box if it's uh, an item right. that you've never experienced. Whereas, exactly. Whereas, in the later Zelda games, every time you restart the game, it tells you what bombs are again, which wastes your time, well, right? Whereas, in the later Zelda games, there's, you know, the, the Ego Raptor talks about, like, the, the animation of Link being amazed by the fact that there's a treasure chest at all and then whatever's in it, right? I mean, what is the correct term to talk about that? Because it is a waste of the player's time. So I've clearly been running in very limited social circles because I had no idea that saying the new Zelda games waste the player's time was a controversial statement. And maybe in most places it's not even, maybe I'm not 100% wrong about that, but regardless, Richard disagrees very strongly with that statement. Uh, So... That disagreement led us to a whole other discussion about the Zelda series, about the Souls games, about sort of the nature of opinions, the uses of data and metrics, uh, the nature of inquiry, really. Uh, It's an intimately related discussion to the one that you just heard, but it is in some ways separate. So in the interests of making this digestible, I am going to leave this here for now. We'll pick up right here next week, and uh, I'll share the rest of that conversation with you. Richard and I will probably also do something on his uh, YouTube channel or somewhere else. This will be a multimedia venture, but look forward to the rest of this conversation next week for a start. You can find uh, Richard's design-oriented project at designoriented.net, and you can find the rest of this podcast, the accompanying blog, and all manner of other delights at etao.wordpress.com.